Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring and passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 360, Redesigning Home Ownership with Brian Gaudio of Module. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors. RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM, specifications, and so much more, all for free. FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work you love. And Gusto, the easy online payroll and benefits service built for modern small businesses like ours. In other words, a people platform. So thanks to RCAT, FreshBooks, and Gusto for supporting the Entree Architect community of small firm architects. Brian Gaudio, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. Excited to be here. It's great to have you here. Uh, Brian is co-founder and CEO of Module, a Pittsburgh-based housing startup trained as an architect. Brian worked in Blue Sky at Walt Disney Imagineering, uh, developing new ride concepts for the Disney parks. So if you ever wondered who, <laughs> who designs those cool rides, we have somebody on the, on the line right now. Uh, at the Gulf Coast Community Design Studio, he worked on affordable housing and community planning in post-Katrina Biloxi, Mississippi. 
Uh, later, Brian served as a Fulbright Scholar in the Dominican Republic, where he conducted research on gr uh, green infrastructure and disaster resiliency. In 2016, Brian co-directed Within Formal Cities, a feature-length documentary about the global housing crisis, which has since screened in over 20 cities worldwide. So Brian has, uh, has a pretty interesting history. He has a pretty interesting story about what he's doing with Module. Um, before we jump into Module, because I want to learn all about what you're doing with Module, um, but I want to learn more about you first. I want to dive into your origin story, Brian, and, uh, and learn about where you discovered architecture, what inspired you to pursue architecture, and share that story to where you find yourself today. Absolutely. Um, so first, thank you for having me on the show. I'm, I'm excited to speak to other small firms and uh, I, I welcome any, anyone who wants to reach out afterward and any feedback. Great. Um, so the origin story, I was in the fourth grade when I discovered architecture. So we live in Pittsburgh or my family lived in Pittsburgh at the time and we were going on vacation in the Laurel Highlands and that there was one morning where, you know, we were, I wanted to go play mini golf. My parents said, no, we're going to go tour this house. And I was upset. I didn't want to, <laughs> I did not want to. Mini go. golf or house tour. I want right. mini golf. Yeah, exactly. Most fourth graders would say the same yes. thing. Um, but the house happened to be Kentuck Knob, which was uh, one of the homes designed by Frank Lloyd Wright um, for the Hagen family. And so begrudgingly, we went there, or I went there begrudgingly. And then when we walked in, I was amazed. Uh, it struck me. There was a, there's a hexagonal plan and patterns throughout the home. And I, you know, as a fourth grader in geometry class, you could recognize that. And I was really fascinated by it. And at that end of that tour, I said, all right, I'm going to become an architect when I grow up. Um, so did you, did you learn what architecture was at that house tour? Did, did sort of the, uh, the idea of architect and architecture sort of come to you at that moment? Or did you already know what, what an architect was and what they did? No, I don't believe I knew what an architect was or what they did. And I think in that moment, you know, seeing the beautiful, serene setting that that building is placed in and seeing how thoughtful every space was, I think that's when something clicked for me yeah, and I was yeah. fascinated. And the house tour probably, you know, uh, identified that it was a special house and it was designed by a special architect and and uh, that probably also was some inspiration. Oh, there's an architect, there's a person that did this. Yeah, and I wanted to learn about that person. I, I think after that, I did my fourth grade report on Franklin Wright, <clears throat> started like designing Japanese tea gardens. Like I, I just started exploring his work, Yeah, uh, you know, as a middle school student, I guess, um, and wanted to take as many architecture classes and photography classes as I could throughout you know, middle school and into high school. Um, I just wanted to consume as much as I could about architecture. and about so, you, so you're locked in fourth grade. I'm an architect. How do I get there? Yes. Locked in, <laughs> locked in, ready to go. Yeah. Uh, I was really passionate about it and um, ended up going to architecture school at North Carolina State in Raleigh, North Carolina. Yeah. Um, and I think in architecture school, I started to learn about my sub interests in the world of architecture. 
Um, and also the things that I found challenging about the world of architecture too. Um, I saw, you know, public interest design is what I would call that subsector that was really struck me as interesting because I had an interest in doing good things for the world. I also had an interest in architecture. I didn't see how those two things could become one thing. And yeah. in, in school, I was mentored by a professor named Henry Sanoff, who started EDRA, the Environmental Design Research Association, did some work under Brian Bell, who started the Public Interest Design Institute. So I was surrounding myself with a lot of the leaders in that field. And that's really what I started to, to lock on to. Interesting. And so, so where did that inspire you to go? So you, so you, you were introduced to public interest design in school. Did you do something in school uh, or did you sort of graduate and then pursue, start pursuing that? Um, I started, yeah, it was interesting in Henry, who is, a, again, one of the fathers of, I guess, community design, participatory design, mentored me as an undergraduate. So I started doing a lot of research in the summers. Um, and he had, I guess, Henry, who I think was working, I, I believe he might have been working for Frank Lloyd Wright at one point. He left and left the profession, went into Trenchtown, Jamaica, and started doing these, like, anthropological studies. So I, um, in my time as an undergrad, I got some research grants to go to the Dominican Republic and start doing community-based research, asset-based community development work in the Dominican Republic in the rural areas. So I was looking at vernacular architecture there, looking at how, um, you know, sort of uh, maybe more of an urban design and anthropological analysis of how this particular community was was operating and, and who it was and what it what it saw its potential to become. And I think I started doing a lot of research into that and attending a lot of conferences and seeing the work that a lot of other architects were doing in that particular field, um, both internationally with groups like Mass Design Group and then, you know, locally with, um, you know, the rural studio and places like that. Yeah. So were you inspired to pursue that? as a profession say, okay, I'm going to contribute to this part of, uh, of what we do as architects. Yeah, that was absolutely my, um, my interest was, I think one of the frustrations I had in, in architecture school was, um, it felt that we as architects and as designers really cared about good design, but the people that I had met in the workforce, it wasn't this, you know, what the, how people practiced versus what you're taught in design school was different. Yeah. And I thought that that disconnect between bringing good design to more people is something that everyone wants to do in architecture school. And then once people get into the professional world, very few people are able to do that and make a living doing that. Yeah. And it's this kind of vicious cycle. And that was frustrating for me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly why Entree Architect exists because of that frustration, because um, I feel and, and we feel that if you can build a thriving business, then you can pursue those passions of making the world a better place. If you can't, right, if you can't be profitable, mm -hmm. then you can't make any impact. You have no impact, right? Yep. And it's just a life of frustration. You never get to where you really want to go. Yeah, and, and I saw, you know, my, I, I, did, I knew that I was a non-traditional architecture student, um, I was not the strongest. Um, I don't think I was the strongest designer necessarily. Um, but I was a good presenter. 
Um, and I enjoyed the sort of big ideas mm -hmm. around a project. I thought that was really intriguing. And so I, I knew that working at a traditional firm was not in, it was just not the right fit for me. And so I started exploring some different avenues, some non, you know, doing a lot of research in the Dominican Republic. I interned at Walt Disney Imagineering for their, in their blue sky department. That was kind of a happy accident that happened. Um, How did that happen from, from, from architecture school and pursuing, you know, uh, Dominican Republic and all of that? How did you end up at Disney? So that was, that was definitely a, a kind of in my career path, that was definitely a kind of a, a side, we got off on a side exit and, and, you know, had, yeah. had some fun. Um, but, uh, my roommate at the time, there's a, there's a competition that Walt Disney Imagineering, which is basically the engineering architecture art arm of the Disney theme parks. They have a competition every year to try to attract new talent to work for them. So the prompt was design at the first Disney experience on the moon in the year 3011. And my roommate who I referred to as the mad scientist, he was really interested in this. So we pulled together a team from NC state of a, let's see us. We had a mechanical engineer on our team. We had an aerospace engineer and then two architecture students. And we, we entered this competition and we went up against, you know, some of the schools that are really rooted in like theme park design. And we really didn't know what we were doing. Uh, but we ended up winning the competition. So they flew us out to California. We got to present our, you know, our concept to the Imagineers and then they, started hiring interns and you know they they asked me if i wanted to join in their blue sky department which is basically they're brainstorming new ideas in the next five yeah. years what things can we bring and and so i spent i took a semester off i interned there in the summer took a semester off and st stayed out there even longer to to work on some really fun projects yeah it's it's interesting how and i bring this up often on the podcast because i hear people's stories and and people share their origin stories and, uh, and you had mentioned that this is sort of a, a side trip, right? You took an exit mm -hmm. and you went off to, to Disney. Um, but looking at where you are now, uh, they recognized the visionary in you, right? Even, even from architecture school, you recognized the visionary in you. That You said you were a non-traditional design-focused architect, right? That mm -hmm. you were more interested in the big picture. Um, and so they clearly recognized that as well, not only giving you a position at, Blue, uh, at, at Imagineering, but but specifically Blue Sky, where it's all about thinking yeah. big, right? And right. big visions and, and having that, um, which is, is a critical part of your overall story, as we'll get into, that, that without that, that side trip, it's probably unlikely you end up where you are today. Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely, it was a great experience to learn about a multidisciplinary firm, I would call it. You know, we, yeah. we worked alongside engineers, animators, um, you know, performance specialists. And that environment was really exciting because as an architect, when you're working amongst seven other disciplines, your skill set is unique and, and you can bring a lot of value. Um, I think sometimes when we as architects work with seven other architects, our skills may not be as valuable. We may not bring the insight uh, or see other insight from other people. So that was a, a beautiful part of Imagineering was was that, that interdisciplinary work and the lack of ego, at least, at least mm -hmm. at the lower level that I was at, yeah. um, perhaps, but it was, there wasn't much, you know, 
at the end of the day, it was going to say Disney on it. So it didn't really matter whose stamp, you know, it wasn't given an award at the local, you know, AIA awards, right? right? It, right. It existed in the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So, so you're, you're at blue sky. What happens after blue sky? Um, so I'd, I actually, they had offered me to kind of leave school and continue to work there, but I felt that I wanted to complete my education and I wanted to get back into, you know, public interest design, which is really what my passion was. So graduated from the BARC program, um, at NC state, and then, went to Biloxi, Mississippi to work for David Perks, who runs the Gulf Coast Community Design Studio. So as an intern there, um, which is a great experience. And it's a firm that's very, I think, very ethical, very much rooted in um, community development and enjoyed seeing the way that David and his firm operate in Biloxi and how they are... uh, very neighborly, I guess I would say it was very much an open door place where um, people could go. People saw them as an asset in that in that community, which is, I think, a really positive way for an architect to be viewed. Yeah. Um, so it was, a, it was a good experience. So what was what was that firm focused on? Were they they rebuilding Biloxi after so Katrina? F- yeah, they started. So I think. I don't know if this is the exact origin of their story, but after Katrina, after Katrina hit, David opened up a branch of Mississippi State University. So this firm is a nonprofit firm that's basically has is somewhat funded by Mississippi State. So they opened after Katrina and did a ton of housing rebuilds there with some of the you know the federal funds. So a lot of the homes are lifted up one story at least uh, to get above the floodplain, and there's some really interesting. Uh, work that was being done by the Gulf Coast Design Studio with a couple of other partners in the community. Um, After that, after Katrina was over, the design Gulf Coast Community Design um, Studio shifted into more planning because, okay, well, now we've built back some of the housing. What's next? Well, we need to get the city back up and we need to get urban life happening. So they did a lot more planning work. They did some environmental remediation of the bayou. So there was some landscape architectural work. And then because of the work that they did and how driven they were by, you know, the community driven they were, other disasters would call, after other municipalities would call. So I worked on a project in Houston. So Hurricane Ike, mm-hmm. the, the first wave of rebuilds there went poorly. There was, it was, it was a lot of, disgruntled homeowners after they got their new house. So they called up the Gulf Coast Community Design Studio to come in as a consultant and help manage that process. So I worked on a little bit of the of the Hurricane Ike disaster recovery rebuilds, but they did a lot of planning work and work their work grew outside of Biloxi actually after that. <laughs> that sounds that 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 story in um Houston sounds like a very difficult position to be in to go in and sort of fix the problems after the first round of trying to fix the problems. So you have, yeah. you have people who are upset about, you know, what they've, what they've been, been handed and the government is probably not happy. And the prior designers were probably not happy. And it sounds like a very oh, difficult yeah. position to be in. Yeah, I, I think it was. And that's never the easy thing to be the fixer, yeah. uh, you know, of a, of a problem. 
Um, but I remember that we had, I guess they had a call for, they had a call for submission. So there were plans, basically some, some floor plans, elevations and home layouts from various architects in the, in the Gulf coast area. So they pulled those together and then we had meetings with homeowners to, to try to give them more choice. It wasn't yeah. like, all right, this is the house you're getting. That's right. it. We, tr- we wanted to give them a bit of the experience of working with an architect um, with some sort of packages, if you will. Okay, here's, the, here's based on your family size, here's some plans that work for you. And we would have meetings with the homeowners to, to select their plan and then select their, uh, you know, some of the finishes in the home. So the system was different. So that you, you take what, you, what you've learned up in Biloxi, bring it down and say, okay, you know, let's get involved in the community. Let's get the people who are in the community involved in what's being built and how it's being built so they have some ownership and all that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, knowing that the homeowners were frustrated because they had been without for years, they had been without their, you know, their residents and they've been waiting to get back. And, and so I think the patients, they were very patient. So we had to be understanding of their, of their situation. Yeah. That was important. We will return to our conversation right after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors. Our cat. FreshBooks, and Gusto. Every day, more architecture professionals are adding RCAT to their workflow to save them time and money. RCAT helps designers, specifiers, and architects compare and select the best products for their projects using the powerful RCAT search engine. They also offer data files like BIM and CAD and specifications right there on the same site for free without registration. There's no catch, no cost, no email. It's all free. All your building material information and all your manufacturer information, all in one convenient place. Visit rcat.com today to see why so many professionals are consolidating their product search to one task. Visit rcat.com. That's rcat.com, A-R-C-A-T.com. Visit rcat.com today. There's lots to love about being an entrepreneur architect, but trying to figure out your financials on your own is not one of those things. Luckily, there's FreshBooks, the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for business owners like us. FreshBooks takes all of the not-so-fun parts of running a business, from building and tracking invoices, to organizing expenses, to managing online payments, all of that, and it automates them and simplifies them, saving you up to 11 hours a week in the process, 11 hours. FreshBooks has your back at tax time too. With tons of reports to choose from, you'll know exactly where your business stands and you can easily hand over the keys to your accountant so they can take over when it's time to reconcile everything for the year. Try FreshBooks for free, 30 days. No credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com architect and enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's freshbooks.com slash architect. And let them know that you're a member of the Entree Architect community. Freshbooks.com slash architect. Look, 2020 has proven to be the year of many things. But if you own your own architecture business, this could be the year that you switch to better payroll. Gusto wasn't just built for small businesses. It was built for the people behind them, like you and me. Their online payroll 
is so easy to use. Gusto can automatically calculate paychecks and file all your payroll taxes automatically, which means you have more time to run your business. Plus, Gusto does way more than payroll. Gusto helps with time tracking, health insurance, 401ks, onboarding, commuter benefits, offer letters, access to HR experts. You get the idea. It's super easy to set up and get started. And if you are moving from another provider, they can transfer all your data for you. It's no surprise that 94% of customers are likely to recommend Gusto. And here's the best part. Because you're a listener right here at Entree Architect Podcast, you get three months free, totally free. All you have to do is go to gusto.com slash architect and all the details are there. Again, go to gusto.com slash architect. You'll thank me. You're going to love Gusto. Get started today at gusto.com slash architect. Arcat, FreshBooks, and Gusto. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. So for you, what's next after after Biloxi in, in Houston? Um, so after Biloxi, so I was planning, I had graduated school and I was ready to go and work at Biloxi for you know a good period of time. And, but before I graduated, I had gotten a, a friend and I had gotten a grant from our school to go study architecture anywhere in the world we wanted. And it was, that was the grant. It was a traveling fellowship. And we decided that we were gonna go to South America and study informal settlements and sort of architecture without architects, but then also architects that are going into those places and working on you know, urban interventions, if you will. So we got that grant. So I told my boss, David, at the time, I said, hey, David, you know, I'm really excited to be here at Mississippi State. By the way, we, my friend and I got this grant and we're gonna go on a trip for six weeks. So we're going, we're tr- going to travel to South America and we're going to be filming this documentary. You know, we raised money on Indiegogo and, you know, we have to go make this film and then I'll be back. So it'll be a six week hiatus. Um, and while I was on that trip, I got a call from the state department and they said, um, you've been selected basically you've been selected as a Fulbright scholar. The previous, I was on the wait list at the time. This I had applied to, of the things that I was applying upon graduation, I had applied to Biloxi for Gulf Coast. I applied to be a Fulbright. I was not accepted at the Fulbright. I was put on the wait list. They said, go on with your life, go get a job. You know, thank you for applying. And then six months into my job, I got a call from them and saying, someone bailed. Do you want to take this? You have till the end of the week to let us know. <laughs> So I was in Lima, Peru, having to tell my boss in Mississippi that I was not coming, you know, I was not going to be able to stay there. And I was going to be going to the Dominican Republic to do this Fulbright program. So that was really challenging. Uh, I was nervous about that, but David was very understanding. And um, I am sad that I wasn't able to spend more time at the Gulf Coast Design Studio. but I, uh, it was an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. So while I was filming with my friend, Abe Drexler, who works at Kieran Timberlake, while we were filming this documentary in South America, my career, you know, my, I thought I was going to be in Biloxi for three or four years at the least. And then all of a sudden I got this opportunity. So that I had to go and, and, and pursue that. 
So after our six, you know, our six weeks of travel going to five different cities, then I, I, you know, came back to Biloxi, finished out till the end of the year working there and then left for the Dominican Republic after that. And then how, how, what did you do there and how long, how long were you there? I was there for about 11 months. The full bike program is about 10 and 10 to 11 months. Um, and it was working at an architecture school, uh, Pucamaima in Santiago in the Dominican Republic. It's a private Catholic school and they have an architecture department and an urban, the center. It was the Centro de Educación Urbana. So it was like a kind of like an urban research center there. So I was sort of a researcher stationed at the Urban Research Center, but I would give guest lectures at the architecture school. Um, you speak Spanish? I do speak Spanish, yes. Did you speak and before you went there? I did. I, I went to, um, I had a, took Spanish through high school and I think I took one year in college. So I was pretty good at Spanish and I traveled to the Dominican Republic right, to do yeah. that research so much yeah. that I was good. I was good enough. So you had enough to, to make it at Dominican Republic and then sort of learned it there. Yeah, I had enough to make it. Like and I, and the good thing, the students, they were pretty good at English. So when I couldn't think of a word, it was, you know, I could yeah. basically speak a, speak something in Spanish and then throw in one English word and they would get it. it yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. Spanglish mixture. Right. Um, but we, there, we, the, we worked on a, in a low income neighborhood. I mean, it's kind of, as I think about it, it feels like some of the work that was being done in Biloxi. There was this low income neighborhood called Yaguita de Pastor in the city. And it was an informal area. Basically, they built a big monument in the city, in Santiago, to one of the dictators at the time. And they moved all those people alongside the river, right? Set them up with a community there. And of course, it was in a floodplain. So when tropical storms happen, this river is, this, I'll call it a stream, floods the community. And people die. And even little children have died. And there was just a lack of infrastructure in that neighborhood. So the, the research that I was working on was basically, there was a, a big tropical storm that hit several years prior and the mayor went out you know, after the storm and he walked the neighborhood and he said, we're gonna fix this you know, river up. We're gonna fix it up and we're gonna help people. We're gonna build some more bridges, but that never happened. So the research was, okay, if we had implemented what the mayor said that he was going to do, what would that look like? And so I worked with students from the architecture school, about six interns, so six architecture students, which was really fun. They joined our research team and we went out and we did some participatory design and an asset inventory of the neighborhood, participatory design to think about how might we repurpose that space along the river. Um, so it was a lot of fun and it was very ad hoc. It was yeah. not. <laughs> We were testing water quality. We learned how to do water quality testing, but we didn't have the tools. So we like, we got these two big Pepsi bottles, you know, duct taped them to a, uh, to a wooden stick. And that's how we took our water samples in this very, I mean, <laughs> we didn't need to take samples. The water was extremely yeah. polluted, but that's, it was an interesting experience. So was there any progress made through that or was it more of a design challenge? Um, that was one of the, you know, that was, a, I think the progress that was made, in my opinion, was I got to work with some great students and 
we got to collaborate on this. And I hope that those students take that like kind of public interest design mm -hmm. methodology with them moving forward. Um, the report that we created and the proposal that we created, we presented it to the lo a local nonprofit in the community that does a lot of work there. We presented it to some of the local government. And then we got a meeting with the Rockefeller Foundation because they had set up this 100 Resilient Cities initiative. We supposedly had a lot of money to be, you know, working in 100 cities around the world. And we presented it to the Rockefeller Foundation in the hopes that, you know, there would be some funding to, uh, to implement some of this. But nothing ever came of it. So unfortunately, I don't think any of those changes have been implemented. Yeah. Um, yeah. But maybe some of the people, like you said, some of the people that you worked with are inspired to continue to pursue public interest and, and make the world a better place. Yeah, I, I believe so. I believe so. I think that's a really great experience working it. You know, the, the Fulbright program is basically about diplomacy, like soft, it's kind of like the soft di diplomacy. And um, so I think they put smart people in countries who are good people and it's sort of the goal of the Fulbright is like, well, let's make the U S look like we're good people. Mm -hmm. So I think in that res respect, I think it was successful, Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it was great to meet. I got to play on a Dominican softball team, which was very fun because they're very serious about baseball. Yeah, that's for sure. The, the, uh, jerseys, it was actually each school at the university had a team. So I was on the Arquitectura team which was really fun yeah none of the, the the thing about the players so they were all recruited from outside none of this, there might have been one architecture student on the team it was all folks who like i don't know if even they were students yeah but, you know, we had architecture oh, serious they have to win however they need to win right that's true that's true so where what where did you go next what what took you away from there um after that i was I was going to move back to the United States. So I could have went back to Biloxi and, you know, worked back in Biloxi, but I, I thought it was, I had some friends who were entrepreneurs um, and I'd been, you know, following some of their stories. And I was, I was thinking, I, I knew that starting things was really exciting to, to do. It's just great, you know, you starting a podcast and all of the things that you've started. I think you always learn when you do something for the first time. It's just, yeah. it's a wonderful experience. And I was, itching to, to, to have that experience of doing something for the first time. So I talked to a couple of friends and I was like, you know, I think I have some ideas. I want to start a company when I moved back to the United States and was listening to a podcast called Gimlet Media Startup by Gimlet. Yeah. One of my first, yep. Yeah. That first season was very raw. Yes. Um, a big inspiration for me as well. Oh, really? Yeah. And it was just this, exciting they just told the story in such a way that was a i wouldn't say no frills but it was very open about the entrepreneurial journey and that was that was exciting and so i was listening to that and i'm scribbling ideas for what i want to do when i go back and basically i moved back to pittsburgh i moved back into my parents house to save money and said all right i'm going to start a company and we're going to start a company about bringing design good design to more people and that's how module initially was started. Yeah. And That's very interesting because your entire story up to that point was all service and all public interest. Um, there was nothing about entrepreneurism in any of what you sh shared with us until that moment. So, so was the entrepreneur clearly as a visionary, that's who entrepreneurs are, was the idea of someday maybe I will have my own 
uh, I'll pursue my own passion and create something as an entrepreneur. Did you always have that feeling inside? You know, I always had that feeling inside. I don't think it had manifested in a, in a business before it had always manifested in these projects. So like getting, raising some money for the documentary and like going to do a documentary Yeah. we had to create a website, we had to create branding for it. Yeah. Um, you know, at NC state, when I did a lot of that research, we had started a nonprofit organization and, you know, got a small amount of, maybe it was like 5,000 a year was our budget, but we had done some of entrepreneurial things. Um, and I had actually in high school, I had done a, a program, a summer program on entrepreneurship, which just is something my, you know, my, my mom was like, look, you need to, you need to do something this summer. <laughs> so I have three kids. <laughs> I know exactly those conversations. So especially this summer when right. everything was canceled. Oh, I know. Um, I can only imagine, but, um, but yeah, I think those, those planted some seeds and I had a, a friend of mine was an entrepreneur who had started this project out of, he was a senior at NC state and they had started this company out of a senior project. And I was really, they asked if I wanted to join the team. And I, I said, ah, I'm going to go pursue architecture. And so I always had that interest in doing something and starting something. Yeah. I think starting a business and a for-profit business was unique and different and was a, a lot to learn. What, when you came back and you said, okay, I'm going to start this new company, what was the motivation? What was the inspiration to say, I'm going in this direction rather than that direction? So the inspiration came from the documentary film. A lot of it came from the documentary film that uh, Abe and I worked on within formal cities. We saw these architects and designers doing really impactful work in their cities. And it was almost part of the culture there to do this type of work. It was just, yeah, this is what we do. Yeah. Um, compared to the US. And there was one idea in particular that I was fascinated with. It was this incremental housing. So in, in we saw a project in from Elemental in Santiago, Chile, and then a project in Peru where they had designed the project so that residents could self-perform additions onto the homes at a later date, which I was really fascinated by. This, yeah. this Lego block concept. And I was like, man, that's such a good idea why don't we do this in the United States? Why doesn't this exist? And could this be a way if they're using it for affordable housing in South America, why can't we use the same concept to build affordable housing in the United States? So that was the kernel of the idea that, that birth module. So they, you know, moved back in and called up my old my high school shop teacher and said, I can, can I use the shop, <laughs> start making some architecture models, <laughs> use their 3d printer to, yeah. to, to develop some concepts. So that's, that was how some of the work in South America inspired the yeah. starting module. And, and the, the friends that you reached out to, uh, you said that you had some friends that you reached out to, to sort of talk about this new idea. Were those friends from NC state or was that people you've met along the way? Um, most of them were friends from NC state. I, I basically made a list of all the smartest people that I knew. I was like, who would I want to start a company with? Who, who do I really respect? And I just started, sharing this concept with them, engaging where they were in their life and their interest level. Um, and I think it's important when you're starting a business to find people that you trust. I think that's probably the most important thing, especially getting started, uh, is someone who you're going to be working, you're basically married to that person or those people for the first several years. And you want to find someone who, who has the time has the risk profile 
and and that you have a good rapport with. So I started calling up mostly folks from NC State who I had met, some from high school and other places. And you and you did you have the idea sort of solidified on where you wanted to pursue, or was it just sort of a, a sort of a vision? Um, I think the concept because we had I moved back in November and we had entered this 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 uh, program, this boot camp, this entrepreneurial boot camp. If you got into the boot camp, you got five thousand dollars. So you got to pitch. You submitted your application. So I called up my friend. I said. Drew, uh, who's one of my co-founders, and I said, Drew, uh, you know, we, there's this boot camp in Pittsburgh. I want to do it. If we get into the boot camp, will you fly to Pittsburgh and and you know take part in it with me? He said, Sure. So, I th- that was you know how I found my first co-founder. Uh, it took a while for Drew to officially become full-time at Module, but that was like when we had first kicked it off was in February. But the idea was that. Um, architecture like there there were great examples of small architecture firms that were doing really good work um but the city as the cities develop they're still ruled like the the built environment as it evolves in a city is still determined by who has the deepest pockets and if those are the the x y or z developer in your city they're really controlling the the development narrative in your city or it's a particular foundation community or otherwise um, and so the goal was how do we, how do we help shape equitable development in cities and put housing affordability and good design at the forefront of, of, of development. And instead of starting an architectural practice to do that, can we start a quote technology startup around this concept and push those, some of the same objectives that the arch, the AA and architectural world are pushing, but in the, in a different vehicle. So explain, explain what Module is. What is it today? Um, so Module today, and it's definitely evolved since that first, very first day. Um, module is a startup company that is delivering a better housing product, single family housing product, and a better process to do it. So we leverage... A, I, I make the comparison to Tesla, for example, as like a, as a comp, comparable, yep. diff, very different valuation that Tesla has versus for now, yeah, for now, for now. <laughs> um, but Tesla went into a legacy industry that was the auto industry and they created a beautifully designed eco-friendly product. So we are going into the housing industry with a what I would argue is a beautifully designed eco-friendly product. We we build to the U.S. Department of Energy zero energy ready home spec. So it's not it's more prescriptive uh, than some of the other programs out there, but it's a more attainable program. There's not a significant amount of cost to certify the homes, et cetera, et cetera. So beautiful eco-friendly product, and then a 10x better customer experience. So in the case of Tesla, you can, you know, purchase your car online, you can put down a deposit, and we would like to bring that same experience to the home building experience. So instead of the large tract builder, right, like the large NVR homes, DR Horton, the big top production builders yeah. where it's like walk into the show home, open up the catalog that has like the 1985 Magnolia Lane, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, I want the, I want the Magnolia with the white right. fence. Like right. with brick face and the shutters. And... Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. And two hose bibs out the back, you know, whatever. Um, 
So instead of that experience, can we give people a, can we migrate that experience, some of that online? Um, and can we make the process more fun? So take some of the beauty of engaging with an architect um, and, and bring that to a larger audience. So a much better customer experience, drawing a lot from the architectural world. And then with Tesla, their battery system and their manufacturing plants, right? They do their own fact manufacturing. Our version of that is leveraging modular construction, which we believe is the future of construction with labor rates where they are, the labor shortage is huge. The construction industry is going to need to start adopting more and more prefabricated building systems. So we said, we believe in that. So let's leverage existing prefab manufacturers to be supply chain partners. So think of us as we own the relationship with the customer, the client, and we work with one-off home buyers. We also work as a developer on projects. So we will go out and develop projects. And, and then we leverage a digital customer experience and a 21st century supply chain to deliver our product to customers. So it's like a very big consumer product that's very challenging because a home is a incredibly challenging thing to design. There's so many pieces that go into it. Yeah, when you visit the website, um, uh, modular, what is it again? Uh, module housing. Mo Modulehousing.com, modulehousing.com. Um, right away, you, you feel that. You feel, I mean, it's very well designed. It's very simple in a very good way, right? The selections are very simple. The designs are very simple. It's very straightforward. There's, it's, there's very little intimidation, right? It's, that customer mm -hmm. experience is very obvious that you've focused on that with designs all the way through the process. Um, and uh, it's very inspiring, first of all, from, from an architecture and an entrepreneur point of view to look at what you're doing. It's very exciting. Um, but I love the idea that you're looking at it sort of like, like you said, like Tesla has, that you've, that you've taken the house and you've make it, made it now a manufactured product that somebody can come in and they could you know, uh, pick the options that they want, but essentially you're getting a Tesla, right? The Tesla mm -hmm. can come with lots of different options but you're still getting a Tesla and it's still going to be built the way it's built. And, and even with the manufacturing with, although Tesla has their own factories, lots of automotive companies like anything in general motors, isn't all completely designed by general motors. It's right. lots of supply chain manufacturers that are bringing products to uh, general motors and general motors is, is essentially assembling that into a car. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it's interesting that you're not, you're not, you have no factories, you're working with existing right. factories. So you've taken control of the, the buying process, the design process, and the delivery process, right? Mm -hmm. And then the actual manufacturing is being done by somebody else to your specifications. That's correct. That's really well, well described. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting uh, to, to see what you're doing. What, what, who do you serve? You're based in Pittsburgh. Um, do you serve just Pittsburgh for now, or are you, are you national? How, how is it? So. Yeah, it's, it's been, so since launching our company, we've been written up in a lot of, you know, a lot of national publications. So we've gotten what's, we just did an analysis of the leads that we get through our website and two thirds of the leads come from outside of Pittsburgh. Um, so from a stage perspective, we delivered our first home for a customer last year. We're now building four more in Pittsburgh this year, which will complete in August. Um, and for a while, we were just focusing on Pittsburgh because we didn't want to just stretch ourselves too thin. But we recognized, given the demand of inquiries coming in, we're testing one project right now in Seattle. 
where we've hired a local architect, a local contractor, and a local manufacturer to be sort of the boots on the ground delivering this product, and we're yeah. testing that out. So for now, we're focused on Pittsburgh. If there are projects that add strategic value uh, and are really good opportunities for us, we'll, we'll take on projects outside of Pittsburgh. And that's one of the advantages of not dedicating yourself to factory built, right? That, you're, that you've built the factory. Correct. Go, once you've built out the systems and you know those systems work, you can just pick those systems up, plug them into another city, and you've expanded. Yeah, exactly. And I think as a startup, we've learned that we're not a t- true technology startup, right? We're a tech-enabled company. We're not a technology company. But from a, a lot of investors that invest into startup companies are thinking about how scalable is your idea? Right. And so if we had went out and bought our own factory in Pittsburgh and said, all right, we're going to start, you know, that would give us more control on the product side because it's like, okay, you own the factory, you own all of the ingredients that go into that house, but it limits your ability to scale quickly. So for that reason, because it was capital intensive, um, mainly it was just so capital intensive and, and the lack of ease of scale, we, we decided to work with third party factories. So we have to, you know, we have to be picky, I guess, with the, the factories that we work with. Yeah. And, and because the designs are, they're affordable designs, right? And they are uh, designed in a very straightforward, simple way, beautiful, very modern, but very simple. That also lends itself to being able to uh, allow other factories to build them because the specifications are pretty straightforward that you're not trying to do these crazy architectural designs. They're straightforward homes designed in a really clean, modern way. Yeah, that's been a learning experience for us. Our designs have evolved over time as we learn more about factory capabilities and what are, you know, we're trying to design for what are 80% of factories in the United States, what kind of, you know, product can they build? What specs do they build to? What type of window manufacturers do they work with? So we try to balance you know, high quality design with price point, with energy efficiency. And those are like the three sort of toggles that we have to be constantly working with to make sure that we deliver a product that we believe is, is, is going to add a lot of value to the customer. Um, but it's also in a, a relatively affordable product, right? We don't, there's a lot of, there's several companies out there. They're using prefab that build really, really high-end homes. A lot of them in the West Coast. It's like they're using prefab and they're just building super, super custom homes. And we thought that there was enough companies out there doing that. We wanted to target a kind of middle market product. Like how instead of instead of someone buying a, a tract home, could they buy one of our homes? Like right. how can we, you know, how, how can we convert that customer over? So you're giving you're giving that DR Horton customer an option to to try something else. Yeah, that, that's the that's the goal as a company is, you know, can we build thousands of units around the country and can we get to a price point that customers can choose one of our models instead of the typical tract home development? Yeah, yeah. So so as we wrap up here, what's what's the future of module? What where do you want this to go? What's the big vision of it? So the big vision of it, which it, it always is evolving. I mean, at at the core of what we do, we want to put agency back in the hands of home buyers. We think that the, the, the production home build, the average production home builder is not doing justice to the American home buyer and they deserve a better product. They deserve a better process. They, they, but it doesn't exist. So we want to create that number one for the home buyer. 
um, and elevate the industry, elevate the quality throughout the industry. Um, and how we do that, we're, we're, we're still in the phases of learning how we do that. A hypothesis, a hypothesis that we have that we need to test is once we have developed, once we've built enough of our own homes, we'll have basically the tools down, the, the technology and the system down. And we'd like to enable mom and pop builders. You know, you think about the, the, the contractors and real estate investors that are building, maybe they own some real estate, they might be flipping homes. Can we enable those flippers to be home flippers to become home builders, right? And, and, and basically give them a product that's off the shelf that's really high quality. Yep. And they, and we can become a distributed home building company where we're working with small mom and pop builders around the country. They're delivering our product, kind of a licensing franchise model. And we could be building thousands of homes without, you know, employing thousands of, yeah. of uh, people. I would also add, don't forget the architects because the, the small firm architect community is very entrepreneurial. Our yeah. community, the entree architect community is very entrepreneurial. Many of them want to do this, but don't know how. Hmm. And it's a perfect fit for somebody like you to come in and say, why don't you help us yeah. build out this idea? You still have control. Yeah. You can then provide some of those and you have a, a whole network of uh, people who understand what you're doing, That's uh, a, like what you're doing. You don't have to convince them what you're doing. Yeah. They already see and, and <laughs> understand true. it. Uh, it would be a great um, uh, distribution model for you. That's a great point. Um, because as we still haven't figured out who our channel partners are going to be right in these other cities, we're testing that out where we have hired an architect in Seattle, you know, for the project, a contractor and a manufacturer. But it, very, it may very well be that that architect can basically serve as the overseer of the project and right. ensure quality control. So I think that's a great point. Yeah, yeah, he could be your middle, or he or she could be your middleman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, 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 the single point of contact for module. And yep. then they sort of build out a team for you. That's great. Um, as we wrap up, I wanna ask you this one question that I ask everybody. We are a, a community of small firm architects, entrepreneurial small firm architects. Uh, trying to run businesses, many of us startups. Uh, what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Hmm. Uh, so today, given that we're in the COVID environment, um, I think the, and we've been affected by that considerably as well, right? It's a, it's a big struggle and a big challenge. So I think what I would say that, to the one thing to do today would be to imagine how you will practice in a world where COVID exists and imagine that COVID is going to exist for another year. How will you as a practitioner, how will I as a practitioner, how will our firm survive? What types of projects, what types of things can we take on that may be non-traditional to bring in revenue and to ride out this storm and that may not be the, the clients that you serve it may be something completely different um but quickly iterating that and testing that out will will be valuable both to help get through covid but it also be sort of a tool for how to launch new services in the future yeah very interesting so don't don't sit around waiting for this to, to go back to normal because it's not going back to normal <laughs> Um, yes. be proactive and, uh, and, and figure out what you're going to do for the next year. Uh, and it may not be what you've been doing. 
Very good yep. advice. Uh, Brian, uh, what's the best? If somebody, if one of our architects are listening and they, and they like the idea of helping you distribute module, uh, what's the best way for them to connect with you? So the best way would be to shoot me an email. It's brian at modulehousing.com. Okay. And I would love to chat. I love talking to small practitioners and small firms. We have a lot to learn from each other. All right. So brian at modulehousing.com. We'll have that email on the show notes. His name is Brian Gaudio. Uh, the, the website is modulehousing.com. I highly recommend that you go look at it. It is a beautiful website, but I love the process. I love the simplicity. I love the designs. You should definitely go check it out, modulehousing.com. They're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at modulehousing, so they're easy to find. So go check them out. Go say that you heard us here at Entree Architect Podcast. Brian, thank you very much for everything that you've done in the past. You have such an interesting story. It took us a long time to get to Module because you have such an interesting origin story. I love what you're doing with Module. If there's anything that we can do to help you uh, pursue your, your goals at Module, please let us know. And thank you for being here and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for the great questions. And uh, it, was, it was really enjoyable. It was really enjoyable. You've been listening to episode 360 with Brian Gaudio of Module. If you'd like to access the show notes or share this episode with a friend, the link is entrearchitect.com slash episode 360. I would really love for you to share this episode with a friend. If you think you uh, have, have an architect friend who might find this episode interesting, entrearchitect.com slash episode 360. That's how we're growing the community of small firm architects here at Entree Architect. And quickly, quickly, just before we wrap up here, if you're listening to this on the day that it's released, Friday, January 29th, 2021, and you are not yet a member of Entree Architect Academy, first of all, what are you waiting for? But if you're not, if you're not a member of the Academy, today is the last day to grab our first simple system. It's a system for project submittals and RFI tracking. Entree Architect Simple Systems, our new business systems program for small firm entrepreneur architects. It's free for members of Entree Architect Academy, but if you're not a member, you can still get it. You can visit entrearchitect.com slash simple systems to learn more. If you are a member, just sign into your member dashboard and go click the simple systems button and you will get this simple system and all the new systems that we're developing in the future. We're going to roll out an entire suite of these systems as we move forward. So if you are a member, you're all set. Just sign into your dashboard and you'll get them. If you're not yet a member, you can join and you'll get them all. Um, or if you want to grab this one, it's available until the end of the day today, midnight tonight, uh, on January 29th, 2021. Midnight tonight, this, sim this simple system is no longer available outside of membership. It will never be available outside of membership again. So if you want it, and you're not a member, you can go to entrearchitect.com slash simple systems to learn more about how to purchase this system. entrearchitect.com slash simple systems. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thanks for listening today and have a great week.
I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.